Good morning. How is everyone doing on this beautiful summer day? Grateful to God I don't have to wear a jacket. Amen. It's good to see you all. You're all looking great. I am grateful to God for the privilege that I have to present the gospel message to you. This is my first time using this mic, so bear with me. <laughs> yeah, so I pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart bring honor and glory to God alone who is worthy of all praise in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Well, today I would like to direct your attention to the first chapter of 2 Timothy. Huh. And I am going to read a few verses. I will start from verse 1 and conclude at uh, verse 12. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 3. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. As without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day. Greatly desiring to see you being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. Which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded is I am persuaded in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Amen. God is not the source of fear. He has given us power, love, and a sound mind. In verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us. I want you to hear this. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. So we are here by divine assignments. Amen. And grace which began. Which was given to us in Christ. Thank you very much. Jesus before time began. But has now been revealed. By the appearing of our savior Jesus Christ. Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep me, to keep what I have, pro what I have committed to him until the day of glorification. What a powerful text of scripture. But before I jump in it, 
I want to share some history with you that connects to this, uh, the later of 2 Timothy. In 64 AD, Rome suffered a very terrible fire. It is said that the fire raged for six days and it destroyed three quarters of the city. In the aftermath of the chaos, many people were convinced that Emperor Nero might have been the mastermind behind the tragic incident. And so what Nero did in order to deflect accusations and placate the masses, he shifted the blame for the fire onto the Christian community. And since he was the emperor at the time, with immediate effects, he ordered for the arrest of some believers who under extreme torture were forced to accuse other believers and it wasn't for long before the larger com Christian community was implicated. I mean, all hell broke loose. You know, history records that they started, you know, hunting down Christians and throwing them in prison. Sometimes they would dip them in boiling tar and some were crucified, like the Apostle Peter, he was crucified upside down. You know, Apostle Paul, he was decapitated. Sometimes Christians would be clothed in animal hides and then thrown into cages with wild dogs and other wild beasts. And they would be torn in pieces. There were times when they were, you know, just torched to flames. So this was a very difficult period for the church. However, I would like to make one clarification as far as persecution in the early church went. I am not saying that all Christians in every part of Rome suffered the same trials to the same degree at the same time. So the trials varied from place to place. In some places like Ephesus where Paul was pastoring, the level of persecution was so intense. I want you to keep in mind that Rome was also a very huge place. You know, it stretched from Asia, Europe, and Africa, you know, Northern Africa, and so on and so forth. But then you had places in Northern Africa where believers were just things were, you know, relatively normal. Just like in our world today. I mean, as I speak to you this morning, you have believers who are going through severe times of persecution. In North Africa, in China, you know. Northern Nigeria. Churches are being burned down. You know. People are killed and you know, they're thrown in jail. And, 
I read some stories of believers in North Korea who they are put in these labor camps and they are tortured on a daily basis because they want them to recant their faith in Christ. You know, I was a while ago I read a story of a, guy, a pastor in northern Nigeria who refused to leave his small village in the wake of intense persecution by the Boko Haram. It's a terrorist organization that operates mainly in West, uh, West Africa. I was so impacted by this story because this is what the gentleman had to say. He survived. You know, because people were questioning his decision to stay, you know, when everybody was running away and... Uh, and he said, if Jesus Christ courageously faced the cross and he refused to give in to the easier option of compromise, what about the rest of us? Now, of course, for some of us who live in parts of the world where we have all the religious liberty in the world, that kind of thinking might seem too radical or even preposterous at best. Because we can say, well, if you come under attack, you run away, you know. And when things return back to normal, you come back and resume the walk. But if you decide to stay, there is a possibility that you might get killed. And whatever walk that you are doing might come to a halt. You know, but we have to understand that the Christian community is so expats, you know. Some of how we think about things is not, you know, does not resonate to so many of these places that have to deal with danger on a day-to-day basis. I mean, today I came in church, and I am here preaching, not worried, that there is some kinds of informers sent from the powers that be that are trying to sneak on what the Christians are doing here in Wesleyan, you know, the Sioux Wesleyan community. We don't have to watch over our shoulders because the conditions are different. That's not to say that we don't face trials and suffering because I do think, you know, the Christian experience has enough stresses and tensions, even in the normal course of things. But what I'm saying is, you know, as we go about our life, we have to remember that we have brothers and sisters who have even paid the ultimate cost for what we are doing here this morning. And so often it's people from those places that even take the trouble to play, pray for the rest of us who are living in, you know, this side of the world. Shouldn't we be the ones who are standing in the gap for them and praying that they won't give up and that they will commit to being faithful and that God will show himself strong on their behalf? You know, but that's the reality of the Christian experience. You know, suffering is not a strange thing, you know. It's not. In this present life, 
Jesus had this to say in John 16, chapter 33, that in this world, you are going to face tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And it's interesting that in Greek, he employs the word thripsis. And this is a word that was used to convey heavy pressure situations. That in this world, you're going to have to face some heavy pressure situations. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. You know, one scholar has said that this word was used to describe the specific act of tying a man with ropes. Then they would lay him on his back and get a huge boulder and place it on his chest till all life was squeezed out of his lungs and, you know. And we are going to go through some things that are of that nature in this world. Now, if you haven't faced that kind of, you know, pressure and praise be to God, but Jesus made it very clear. He painted a realistic view of some of the things that we will have to encounter along our sojourn in life, you know. That there is going to be some times of tribulations and times of suffering. And these things are inescapable, you know. They are a normal component of Christian experience. But be of good cheer. For I have overcome the world. If I'd emerged victorious, sorry, if Jesus emerged victorious, we will also overcome the challenges that we face in life. All we have to do is to look to him. He's the author and the finisher of our Christian experience. The Christian life is all about imitating the person of Christ. He is our yardstick. He is the one who sets the bar for us. And if he says that be of good cheer, you will overcome, you better believe that he knows what he is talking about. You know, Timothy was going through a very difficult time. At this time, he was the senior leader of the church in Ephesus. And he found himself on the receiving end of both external pressure and internal pressure. There was stuff going on within the church dynamics and then externally he had to deal with Emperor Nero. People were dying. People were thrown in prison. People were being crucified. His mentor Paul who is the author of this letter, you know, he writes this letter while confined in a Roman prison awaiting to be executed. So this was Paul's final letter. In the New Testament, we have 13 letters attributed to Paul, which makes up 24% of the New Testament canon. But among the 13 letters that he wrote, this is his final letter. And he presents this letter to Timothy while confined in this cold, dark, damp prison. 
waiting to be decapitated because history records that his head was cut off. And it's from that place that he takes the initiative of speaking life to Timothy, you know, who was going through just overwhelming distress. And he charges him, you know, that God has not given us the spirit of fear, you know. He has given us power, love, and a sound mind, you know. You know, he says to him that I'm praying for you, my son. I intercede for you night and day. Keep in mind the man is in a place where he needs the most prayer. He needs the most encouragement. But yet he's not self-centered, you know. He's still looking on. He's still looking up, you know. He's still speaking life and encouragement to those whom God had committed to his trust. So he says to him, man, I pray for you, you know. I desire to see you. Greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remember is the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and I am persuaded is in you. I mean, look at the heart and the mindset, the mentality of this man. Don't we need that kind of mentality nowadays, you know? May God help us, you know? May God expand our thinking and our hearts for others, you know? And the things that he has called us to do. May God break us out of privatistic religiosity, you know? That every time I find myself in situations of suffering, you know, all I have to do is just focus on myself. That, that I automatically just yield to the inward bent, you know. It's just me and I don't see anything else around me. May God help us to overcome that. Amen. You know, because he has given us the power. God has given us the ability to look beyond the crisis around us and see the need in other people's lives. Look at the Apostle Paul. He has so much going on in his world, but he overlooks that crisis and he sees what is going on in Timothy's life. Isn't, what, isn't that what Christ did on the cross? You look at Luke chapter 23 and Luke 19. In his most desperate state, he has nails through his palms. And Isaiah says that his visage was marred beyond recognition. He's just bloody and beaten. And yet he's in that state, he's willing to offer eternal life to a thief who cries out for mercy. You know? Then he looks at his tormentors. In John chapter 19, I think verses 26 and 27, his were busy mocking him. You know. They tried to give him sour wine. And they were saying, if you are a king, why don't you save yourself, dummy? You know? But then he cries out to God that, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Then he looks at his mother and and John, the disciple, and he says, Mother, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. 
in his most desperate state, he's still mindful of his mother's welfare. And he's making sure that he commits the responsibility of his general welfare to join one of his disciples. Looking beyond our crisis, there is so much more that God wants to do beyond my world, in spite of whatever things that I am dealing with. If I, God can get me to look beyond my Isaac world, there is so much more that God wants to do in you and through you for the good of the others. And may he help us. Amen. So amidst of all this great travails, Paul says to Timothy, just don't give in to the force of fear. Because fear is destructive. Fear causes us to lose sight of the things that are most important to God and to, you know. I have met people along the way who have given up on the call of God on their lives and they have thrown themselves into all kinds of stuff that doesn't have, to, doesn't have any kind of association with the will of God for their lives. I mean, God, for us, for God to reveal, to, to, to make his will plain to us and then we just shun it and take some other direction, that takes some kind of weird boldness. Because God is wise. You know? If he says this is the path that I have set before you, and he knows what he's doing with my life and your life. You read in Numbers chapter 13 and chapter 14, the nation of Israel, God has moved them from the land of Egypt and he desires for them to step into the land of Canaan. But in Numbers 13 and 14, they were stationed at a place called Kadesh. And before they would go into the land to possess it, they chose 12 men who would go into the land and carry out reconnaissance and then they would come back and deliver a report for their findings. And so the Bible says for 40 days, you know, these 12 leaders, and these are leaders, they go into the land and they're spying, they're investigating, they're making sure that whatever details God gave them about this land are sure. So time comes, of course, the nation is expectant, you know, they come back, and 10 of the leaders had given in to fear. And then they start going off, yes, we saw the land, it flows with milk and honey. God was right about that. But we have a serious problem on our hands. We saw the giants of Anakim. Man, we are like grasshoppers to these fellas, you know. They are so mighty in stature, we cannot overcome them. What is God thinking, you know? Is this setting us up for failure? And they went on and on. Well, there is the Canaanites and Hittites and Perizzites and Amorites. And 
This is silly stuff. So some came up with another plan. Well, why don't we choose ourselves somebody who would lead us back to the land of Egypt? You see, they are not thinking right. For 430 years, you have been living in bondage. You cried out to God. He was pleased to show mercy and grace. And he has transitioned you from a land of captivity. And he's bringing you into a land that flows with milk and honey, you know. But you're so caught up with your little world that you want to forfeit the plans of God, you know. You see, when we give in to fear, we lose the ability to see things right. Our perspectives become skewed, and you know. Then we end up in all kinds of trouble. I mean, keep in mind, this was a generation that saw God part the waters of the Red Sea. They saw God raining food from heaven. Have you ever seen God raining food from heaven? Have you ever seen water gushing from a rope? These are the kind of things that God did for these people. For 40 years, God told them that your feet did not even swell. Have you ever tried walking for 40 years and your feet did not, don't swell? He tells them, for 40 years, your clothes did not even wear out. He gave them a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. He rebuked kings for their sake. You know, there is so much that God does for us that we just choose to take for granted. And then they had the, covenant, the ark of the covenant in their midst. God was there. They had a physical sign, you know. Today we don't have that kind of Satan, but they had the cock of the covenant, you know, symbolic to the, you know, this is God is in your midst. You don't have to worry about your tomorrow. You, you don't even have to worry about the Anakims. Who are the Anakims? To a God who is able to part the waters of the Red Sea. Bring water from a room. I mean, who are these people? To this God of Israel. The God who has delivered you and me from our lawless deeds, you know. I mean, you think about all the things that God has delivered you out of. You think at your past experiences, how God came through for you. The kind of lifestyles that you were leading, you know. And then he drugged you from that and cleaned you up. Then he put his spirit in you as a seal for your redemption. And then he elevated us to a status of ambassadors for him. He doesn't just save us, but he also gives us a job to do, you know. I mean, we serve a God who is self-sufficient. God does not need me. Whatever I am doing, he can do it himself, you know. But for whatever reason, he has chosen to partner with us. He has entrusted us with Places of responsibility. There are things that he desires to do in our lives and through us. But yet so often we give in to the forces of fear and confusion. And, and then when we give in to fear, we become just self-centered and you just focus on your life. And I'm not going to think about anything else. It's just me and myself and, you know. So the Apostle Paul admonishes Timothy, do not even give in to the forces of fear. 
Because many scholars believe that Timothy was beginning to reevaluate his commitment to the ministry. And he was even beginning to reevaluate his relationship with the Apostle Paul. And it's upon that very backdrop that uh, Paul actually presents the message in verse 8. That therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. It's like your labor is not in vain, son. The things that God has called us to do are not a waste of time. We live in this dimension of life presently, but a day is going to come where we are going to be transitioned from these into a realm that the Bible refers to as eternity. And the Bible speaks about a time of rewards, you know. That's why the Apostle Paul said that these light afflictions that we face are not even worth compared to the weight of glory that shall be revealed in us. So God has some bigger things in store for each and every one of us. Amen. And so let's not give in to fear. I mean, Timothy was fighting all false apostles, you know, false teachers. Some people who rose up within the church and they began to propagate things that were cancerous to the body of Christ. And so he had to labor, you know, to keep the church within the bounds of sound doctrine. Paul says to him, in 2 Timothy 3, 14, 13, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. He's speaking truth to him. You know, sometimes when we are going through difficult times, the last thing we want is somebody opening up the Bible and quote scripture. We treat this as though, as though it's some motivational speech that is designed to give us a false sense of security. This is truth. The Bible says all things shall pass away, but my word shall abide forever. All these physical realities of life have a date of expiration, you know. But this word is Satan eternity, you know. So we better believe what God says to us through his word. And then he warns that a time is going to come where people will not have an appetite for this. They will go after, get themselves teacher who say things that make them desire the benefits of what the gospel can do for them. But then they don't want anything to do with the demands, you know. And you see that kind of stuff in our world all over the place, you know. Oh, come to God. You know, if you bring your 10,000 with you, if you put your 10,000 here, I say God is going to give you 10 million. Uh, come here, my sister, you know. 
I release the billionaire's anointing on you. Kind of crazy stuff. But you see, the men of God and Jesus, they present a realistic view of things, you know. They don't feed us any kind of wishful thinking. It's not telling us, well, the moment you plant your feet, now don't worry about me standing here. I'm okay, you know. But they're not saying to us, the moment you plant your feet steady within the parameters of the will of God, you are going to get all the houses that you want and all the cars that you want and all the money that you want in the bank. Of course, God blesses his people with good things, you know. But he has better stuff than just, you know, the material ambition and all that stuff, that, you know. Some people have made a center of the gospel message, you know. There is so much that God wants to do as far as even impacting our communities in ways, you know, that will impact eternity, you know. Think about, you know, just God using you to present the gospel message to people who are lost and confused. And, and then you see somebody rising up from the dregs of humanity and, you know, putting their faith in Christ. And, I mean, you can't put a price on that. And that's what God wants to do. And his faith to him, well, God has given us love. Biblical love is not a matter of emotional feeling. It's an act of dedicated will. I know all the cultures of the world have a stated value of love that falls short of, you know, biblical Christianity. If I feel like it, I will love you. As long as you treat me right, I will be good to you. If you are agreeable with me, then but yet the Bible reminds us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross. That's Romans chapter 5, 6, 8. That while you were yet in your dread, dead in your trespasses, Jesus Christ made a decision to die for you and me. And shouldn't that compel us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves? Shouldn't that compel us to pray for our enemies? One writer has said that the moment you disregard the love of enemy, you have undone Christianity. We who are here were once enemies of God. There was a time when you were lying and thieving and fornicating and drug dealing and and God had mercy and compassion, you know. And he was pleased to lavish the riches of his mercy to us, you know. But then we come into his fold and we forget all that. Then we get too technical and sophisticated, you know. Well, I forgive you, but I don't want to deal with you, you know. You know, love is sacrificial. It's going to cost us some things. It's not easy, but it's worth it. You know, sometimes we look at the world and we frown. Oh, look at them. 
Oh, these people were too evil. Look at this world. God, please come and take me out of this present world and take us home and, you know. And we forget that if it wasn't for the lift of regeneration, we are all capable of the most despicable arts, you know, known to man. By grace that we have been saved. The Apostle Paul, you know, I thank God who counted me faithful and put me into his ministry, though I was once a blasphemer, an insolent man, a persecutor, but I obtained mercy because I did it in ignorance, in ignorance and in unbelief. And the grace of God was exceedingly abundantly with love and faith which are in Christ. And this is a faithful saying, trustful and faithful saying, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. You know, the love of God should compel us. When you look back to all the forgiveness that you have received from God, all the times of refreshment, I mean, how many times does he tell us to do one thing and we do the contrary of And yet we come back to him and we cry, oh, Father, I am sorry. Please forgive me, you know. And then he says, all right, here is another. Let me give you an extra dose of forgiveness. Then go and love your neighbor. Go and be good to those who persecute you. Go and pray for the lost. You know, he expects us to exemplify whatever things that we have received from him in our relationships with others. Then he says to him, God has given us a sound mind. You know, a sound mind looks at things reasonably, realistically. In this life, I repeat it, there is going to be some times of challenge, you know. You know, God gives us a realistic picture of things. But sometimes we are going to go through things that we don't like to go through. I mean, suffering is not pleasant. I don't like it. But I cannot... What is the word I want to use? You know, in Africa we say, don't play the proverbial ostrich, you know. Don't hide yourself in the sun. These things are going to come, you know. And when they come, just give up the sense of entitlement, you know. Oh, I don't deserve this. Who deserves it? Did Jesus deserve it? Did the apostles of Christ deserve it? Peter says, do not count this as strange. Your fellow brothers are going through the same things that you're experiencing in this world. Sometimes the enemy has a way of cajoling our minds into believing that what we are going through is one of a kind. But there are people who are going through far worse things than you will ever experience. Like I say, there are people who are being stabbed in prison because of their faith in Christ. They are having nails pulled out. They have been disbanded by families. And I read a story of a young lady in Pakistan. Somebody came and powered acid on her because of her faith. Now all her faith is deformed. And, you know. So if you find your place of struggle and challenge, 
I'm not trying to make light of whatever, you know, we're experiencing as individuals or families, you know. But God has given us a sound mind, the ability to make a comparative analysis, you know. But you know what? What I am going through is tough, but it could be worse than this. And we can be grateful that God has promised that he will be there with us. He's not going to leave us stranded. He has promised that I will come through for you, that I will be faithful, you know. We are not walking through the storms and tremors of life just by ourselves. We have a paraclete, the Holy Spirit, one who comes alongside us as we journey through life. Amen? So we are not on our own. You know, God loves us. He's committed to our highest good. He has our best interests in mind. And he has called us to live victorious. You know. He has called you and me to live victorious. Not when the day of eternity comes. In this world with all its challenges and difficulties and complications and injustices and all kinds of stuff. God has called us to be the light and be the salt, you know. Because he has put something in our lives that the world does not have. You have the spirit of God that empowers us to do what we could not have done in our human strength. And so if you find yourself in a place of struggle, just look beyond your human abilities. And look to him, the author and finisher of our salvation. He so desires to fill you up. Because he has prepared a place for you to influence in this life. You know, the Bible says that one day we are going to stand before the beamer seat of Christ and give account. You know, like I said, we are here by divine assignment. There are things that God has put in my hand and your heart. And he expects us to be diligent and faithful and, you know. And a day is going to come where he's going to hold us accountable for the things in light of what he has committed to our trust. And so, you know, I just charge you this morning, you know, let us become Christocentric in our theology. Allow Jesus to set the bar for your life. Because the Christian life is all about one thing, the person of Christ. It's not what you see over there. Jesus, whatever he calls you to do, that's where you should focus all your attention and your resources and your mind. And because when it's all said and done, that's the only thing that's going to matter, you know. So may God bless you. Thank you for coming. Enjoy the rest of this beautiful day. Amen.